never say never again Never, never say never again Welcome. This is For Your Ears Only on the Optimism Vaccine Network. I'm Jake Tropila, joined as always by Jack Eason. Jack, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. What is happening, you might be asking yourself. Well, it's finally happened. We are covering Never Say Never Again, one of two unofficial Bond films in the Bond uh, uh, not, it's not the canon we're in, because this is not a part of the canon, but, uh, in lore, there are two unofficial Bond films. We covered, uh, Casino Royale, 1967's Casino Royale with Sean Glynnis, uh, and we're back with Never Say Never Again, the unofficial, official remake to Thunderball. Uh, and that film starts out with no gun barrel. We leap right into the song, hence why I'm playing Lonnie Turner's theme. All right, we can turn that down now. So, Jack, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing pretty well. Um, this this is a film I've never seen before. Oh. So this this is uh, an interesting one. This one completely passed me by. Somehow, Octopussy watched that a bunch as a kid. This of film course. released the same year. Never saw it before. Yeah, well, you know, to be honest, I'd be surprised at how many people have seen this film, uh, let alone heard of it or know the circumstances behind it. Um, this is a very strange anomaly in the world of Bond. Um, the Battle of the Bonds, as they say, we lasted, uh, uh, oh, this is episode 0015, by the way. Uh, we lasted episode 0014 was Octopussy, which was 1983, Roger Moore. Uh, uh, a perfect film, some people would say. Uh, I don't know if, if, if we would. Um, <laughs> some people would say all kinds of things. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a mere four months later, uh, 1983, the world was faced with another Bond film. If only such things could be made reality now, but, uh... Thankfully, at this point, this point, four months delays in the current Bond film would actually be looking pretty good. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, Never Say Never Again is a very, uh, very strange uh, film. Um, and not, I say not many people may have seen or heard of it, but because if you, uh, it's, well, I mean, a first of all, the 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 physical media, the DVD, the Blu-ray, those are all out of print. Um, so if you want to spend a pretty penny uh, to get a copy, you can. You can certainly also acquire it through illicit means. But uh, yeah, it's not part of the main EON Bond franchise, so therefore it's not going to be in any Bond box set that you buy anytime soon. Um, but uh, yeah, before we get into the movie, I guess we should kind of get into the history of this film, uh, which we touched upon to some detail in our Thunderball episode. Um, but Never Say Never Again is a 1983 film. It's directed by Irvin Kirshner, best known for the director of Star Wars Five: The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, this film is the result of a uh, messy legal battle between uh, Kevin McClory and the uh, EON Productions. Uh, McClory, as you may recall, was uh, at once slated to team up with the original novelist behind the Bond films, uh, Ian Fleming, to come up with an original story, uh, which would have become a feature film. Uh, This was later shelved, and Fleming took those ideas as his own and produced Thunderball, the novel, which later became Thunderball, the film. 
and Kevin McClory uh, went up uh, all up in the court system about this and uh, actually successfully sued and won the rights to Thunderball. So, which, which makes sense. He yeah. Literally, Ian Fleming hired McClory as a film producer to help him to write this, to, to develop this idea that would become Thunderball. Exactly. Um, and then he decided it didn't work out, so he wrote a book using the same storyline details, and then he credited literally no one else. It was just an Ian Fleming novel. So I can understand McClory being just a little bit a little bit angry about that. That's totally fair. Yeah, it just goes to show kids don't plagiarize unless everyone is dead. Um, but uh, <laughs> that, That's definitely the lesson. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so Cl- uh, McClory, he had to uh, wait at least 10 years after the uh, ensuing trial, which I believe would have concluded in 1971 or 72. And after that, uh, he set out to make his own Bond film. And here's the kicker. He got the original James Bond back to star in the film to spite the Broccoli's. So uh, not only does he have this uh, premise courtesy of Thunderball, but he now also has Sean Connery back in the role as James Bond 12 years after he bid goodbye for the second time in 1971's uh, Diamonds Are Forever. So, uh, yeah, very odd, very messy film. Um, it, they, they, it, uh, it is played on cable a bunch, but, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if not many people knew where this is uh, in the canon. And the truth is it's sure. not a part of the canon. So, And, Jack, like for you the... said, you've never seen it, so um, no, you're here uh, to talk about weird... it. Yeah, well, one of the weird history elements that's actually because I wasn't aware that it was difficult to see on home video. Um, I didn't realize it was out of print and so on and so forth, which is really funny because apparently in, in the ensuing years of media buyouts and stuff, the rights to this film lie with MGM, who currently own all of the EON films as well. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, it's it's actually been ushered into the same corporate entity, but obviously it's it's not getting the, the luxurious treatment of the ever-perpetuating 007 box sets. Right. Yes. And uh, yeah. And I think uh, I think with the release of 2015 Spectre, which is actually featured in this uh, film for the first time since uh, 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service, I want to say we haven't had a lot of Spectre so. with uh, Roger Moore. He's kind of kind of gone away from the Spectre. Aside from the, the the unspoken reference to Blofeld in For Your Eyes Only, there's been no Spectre. So uh, Spectre's back uh, with a vengeance, one might say. And um, yeah, I think with the release of the 2015 film Spectre, EON officially has all rights secured, so uh, hopefully there's no more uh, legal hiatuses going forward when it comes to producing a film. But uh, anyway, that's the boring stuff. Uh, let's get to the boring film. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and sorry. that's a wrap. We're and done. that's a wrap. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you very much. Uh, episode 0016 will be out next month. Um, no. <laughs> I kid, of course. We'll give you some semblance of an episode. It may not be as long as our normal ones because this is a very strange case but we'll do our best to entertain you guys um the film opens uh which i think is the best part in the film with a, a pretty sturdy action sequence um the lonnie hall song aside uh jack what did you think of that song i played at the top of the uh, um yeah program? it's not very memorable particularly it's kind of like a uh if it feels like like a cheap knockoff sort of lounge crooner mm. kind of number and when i saw That's the fair. music credit is michelle legrand who right. you know his work with jacques demy did all the music for young girls of rochefort and umbrellas of cherbourg and he you know he worked true foes and wonderful music he's a jazz 
musician by trade. Uh, that, that was yeah. disappointing to say the least that that's the theme tune. And uh, yeah, so, so not a huge start. I would agree with you though, the opening sequence uh, really, <clears throat> really sets up something I was interested in. Because yeah. we have Sean Connery show up in the jungle, there's like sweat, he's older, he looks a little bit, you know, maybe not as, you know, in shape as he used to be. There's no. kind of like this gritty sweatiness to it that's kind of like almost yeah. reminds me of something like The Wild Geese or, you know, these like 80s action movies about over-the-hill action guys. Um, yeah, there, there's like a real physicality to it and some more practical stuff. He's like shimmying up like a post and cutting wires and zip lining down, you know, like real rough tumble, you know, action hero stuff. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's yeah. he's not in the best shape, but he's he's physically alert. Uh, like there is a, I don't know, there's a fire in his eyes that are that is absent in Diamonds Are Forever. And as much as I love his uh, sleepwalking performance in that movie, I I think it's kind of nice, at least early on, to see Connery kind of back and actually engaging himself with the action in this film. Um, so yeah, please continue. <laughs> Yeah, so so it, like I say, I think that's that's all really good, and he kills a bunch of guys. He's breaking into this this uh, like com- compound full of armed soldiers, like a stereotypical mm-hmm. South American thing. I mean, it's like outtakes from Commando yeah. and, a, and a million other Hollywood movies of that era. Um, and then, of course, it all turns out this is this was a training exercise. All that killing and stuff was all fake rounds it was just trying to bring him usher him back into the into the field or gauge his his ability yeah and it's it's an interesting opening and it kind of reminds a little bit throwback to maybe uh from russia with love which opens also with like a training sequence although it's a little bit more of a brutal hands-on training sequence because i think the russians kill someone you know it's not real training unless you actually see the life drain from a man's eyes that's why Um, we use real targets as they say (laughs) indeed so um it's kind of like it goes. It, it, it sort of it just falls back from there into Bond. You know, the the whole I guess the premise of this is Bond is older and they're acknowledging he's older. And Roger Moore or not Roger Moore, Sean Connery was about fifty two I think when this film came out, which is still ironically about three years younger than Roger Moore for all the talk of how old you know mm-hmm. an older Sean Connery coming back. But yeah, um. There's a lot of the, the the framing of this seems to be that the double O program has been decommissioned. MI6 doesn't deploy agents to feel like that anymore. Budget cuts. Uh, M. We have a different. You know, it's, none. Of, we have no overlap of actors with a with a main Bond franchise piece. Right. Obviously, Bernard Lee has since died in reality, so he wouldn't be M anyway. But you know, we don't have any crossover. We have crossover characters, but we don't have any actor crossovers. So M has kind of. Uh, toned down the whole program he's he doesn't like bond he does he's you know show show pony kind of you know does his own thing in the field he doesn't like it um and it's a really interesting setup and i feel like the entire film rolls away from that setup it's and it's really disappointing yeah it 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 really is um i like the idea of uh Bond grappling with his mortality and how his age could be an impediment in the field and how you know years of as they say in the film eating uh, white bread drink, red meat and drinking um, uh, good god why am I blinking on my notes uh, martinis <laughs> of martinis. course yes of, of course, course what he's drinking. Steady, steady diet of all that has basically been killing Bond so um, yeah so you know it's it's 
it it's it is you know it's a kernel of an idea that unfortunately does not blossom and it's actually pretty forgotten and bond's age doesn't really become a factor uh for the rest of the film he's oh, just the women uh, just throw themselves at him same as always oh, yes yeah. and i mean as soon as he you know as soon as he's in the field doing action he's yeah, there's no discernible difference whatsoever yeah so yeah it, it is it's kind of a it feels like a waste opportunity and i think it really it, it falls back to what i always felt with this film watching it which is knowing the backstory about you know the film being kind of predicated on a legal event yeah it, the film never really distinguishes itself separate of that legal turn it, like it really feels like it's a film born kind of out of spite and legal obligation to to turn a book yeah and that's and it's really disappointing because i think it could have been they like it, it spends the and we'll discuss as it goes on i feel the film really spends so much of its time trying to emulate the main line franchise when surely yeah. this is the optimal uh, chance with sean connery you know the the james bond pretty much the people's favorite that this is a chance to forge new ground this is the chance to really do something different and they don't they really kind of fall back in on the main line and it becomes indistinguishable from the main line and honestly it's really no like octopussy isn't a very strong film but i think octopussy i i maybe found it slightly more entertaining than this it's it's not a great race though um yeah yeah it's it's it just really it, it's kind of a and thunderball as well i guess thunderball was i think the first when we, when we were reviewing the thunderball as the fourth james bond film thunderball was the first film i felt that dipped from its predecessor the first three james bond movies each one kind of escalates from each other indeed uh, you might argue from russia with love is the best james bond film but thunder but goldfinger adds something new you know maybe yeah, it's, it's not the, the quintessential essentially better but it, you know it's it becomes something different it really exactly. adds something on thunderball was kind of the necessary point where where do you go from goldfinger there, there's a dip yeah and thunderball wasn't wasn't that, that bad of a movie but there's definitely a noticeable dip and then this film is basically a retread of thunderball and it reminds me of all of the problems that thunderball has and Again, this thing was in development hell for like 10 plus years while there were court cases and just trying to work out yeah. who should do what. It had at least four different writers over many, many years uh, down to the last two because uh, um, Lorenzo Semple Jr. is the main credited writer, but Dick Clement and Ian Lefrenet were two writers, British TV writers who were brought in the last minute who did a lot of apparently pretty significant rewrites that made it into the film. Yeah. But thanks to Writers Guild rules, they weren't credited so so it actually it's a much messier film than you might think in terms of the number of people who touched it and it feel it's just it's slow kind of stagey the whole subplot with the missing it's all about stealing warheads it just sort of yeah uh, who cares yeah uh, the world yeah. the world's been threatened how many times uh you know it's 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 all and, all and retread honestly, at this point Spectre is, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe we're at competing odds here. You know, we want we want a film that's maybe a little grittier or a little kind of new and Bond, you know, wrestling with his mortality. Yeah. But then they also bring back Inspector, who are, frankly, one of the daftest concoctions of the James Bond universe to begin with. I mean, they always remind me of like a... I don't know if you've ever seen Dragnet, the 80s comedy uh, film with, like, Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks. I have they not, no. Oh, it's, it's a very fun, stupid film. Hmm. And in it, they battle an organization named Pagan. And Pagan stands for People Against Goodness and Normalcy. <laughs> and it's, 
the dumbest acronym, but this is a comedy. It's that sounds meant like to a, be. That sounds like a Mel Brooks gag of some sort. Yeah, pretty much, and they all put on goat skin trousers and stuff. Like, that's what Pagan does. Um, this is Spectre. I don't even remember what it stands for. Like, a society for extortion and this and that and torture uh, and special nonsense. executive for counterintelligence terrorism revenge and extortion sorry go ahead yeah yeah exactly that's a stupid thing for any like no like no one who has actual designs on being a bad guy would actually develop that as a yeah. thing that's something an eight-year-old invented in their bedroom so, um, so it's probably in a way kind of good that it got vetoed out of the the bond universe for a while on uh yeah you know on legal grounds and blofeld of course with it blofeld i'm fine with specter i'm fine with is the idea of an organization that does this but you know all the secrecies of the the numbers and stuff they have number one who's their main villain in this in this and everything it's kind of like it's been done before in the bond universe did it need to be done again does it there's nothing added there's you know we're really in a retread so yeah, yeah. Anyway, I guess this is all my very long-winded way of saying that this movie is just watch Thunderball. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. honestly, before we uh, began doing this, um, I think well over a year ago is when we started, uh, I always seemed to favor Never Say Never Again to Thunderball, and they were both films I wouldn't revisit often because I both found both uh, to be kind of sluggishly paced and uh, not as interesting, um, at least or visually or plot-wise compared to the other films. So they didn't really rank high on my rewatch uh, lists as far as Bond films go. But I don't know, watching, going through this round, I really have a newfound respect for Thunderball where I was able to kind of literally just sit and soak in all the details of the, of the plot as there's extended underwater sequences. And the thing about Never Say Never Again is that there are, aren't as many underwater sequences yeah um, but it's still a very leisurely paced film um and you notice this too this was something is like they got they, they're not underwater as often which you know underwater is real slow and leaden because yeah. that's just how it works but yeah the film doesn't benefit from that at all no this film has video games in it which is crazy um <laughs> yes we, that uh, i believe the centipede placement was paid for that's and i think that's oh. why they had it in a room full of arcade games but anyway we'll get there <laughs> we'll, we'll get there yeah so uh we mentioned specter we mentioned blofeld we do have a new cast of baddies uh blofeld is actually played by one of the finest actors who's ever lived uh we have uh max von sydow himself of uh you might know from some bergman films uh to name a few uh, bergman, or you uh, may know him from his other 1983 achievement uh, strange brew the canadian remake right. of hamlet in a brewery that's which... right Honestly, if you had to watch one of the movies we're talking about, that I would go with this one. Indeed, <laughs> I would yeah. Go with, I would go with that one over this one. Well, we'll do a strange, uh, the Strange Brew podcast after we <laughs> conclude this one. But um, it's part of the Strange Brew extended universe. Yeah. So uh, Von Sydow is not in it enough, um, but I he does bring a nice air of regal menace. I think not since we've seen since Christopher Lee's uh, Scaramanga. Uh, yes. So he's, you know, he's always he's always a good addition to your film. If you can get Max von Sydow, uh, that's always a plus, um, I think. But the uh, the real villains of the film are a pair of uh, eccentric, psycho, crazy people 
there is uh, taking over the role of Fiona Volpe. Her name is now Fatima Blush, played by Barbara Carrera. She's essentially the muscle. And the mastermind behind the uh, stealing of the nuclear warheads is Maximilian Largo, played by the fantastically named Klaus Maria Brandauer. Uh, yeah, that's a Bond name. That's a Bond villain name already. Just a fantastic Germanic name. I love that name so much, and I think he's one of the other pluses in this film. Um, I I'm, I might sound like I'm a little hard on Ever Say Never Again. I don't hate it. I don't dislike it. I actually kind of like it, but there's a lot of problems, but the villains, in my opinion, are not one of them. Um, I no, think I, I would I'd follow you on that one. Yeah, I think uh, if, if we're comparing um, to uh, I, what's his name, Adolfo Selfie, who played um, Largo in Thunderball, he's kind of a more. I mean, he has an eye patch, which is all I really remember from him. But he's kind of a more, <laughs> kind of a more stern uh, villain. But uh, Brandauer. He's having a lot of fun in this role. He's like a kid in a candy shop or an arcade uh, arena, you yeah, could in say. In a video arcade, he, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I don't think there's enough of him in the film, to be honest. That's true, um, yeah. I kind of feel that way about a lot of Bond villains, to you know, really. I know. So I guess that's you, the thing that can happen sometimes. You get a great villain. You, if for like every Yafet Koto or, or uh, Christopher Lee, you feel like, you know, this movie could use a bit more of him. It's, they're just <laughs> so good. Um... But yeah, so they hatch a plot uh, to steal the nuclear submarines. Now, if you recall from Thunderball, I have to go back and look on my notes on this, but in Thunderball, Spectre hires a pilot to undergo plastic surgery so he can look like an American pilot and kill that pilot so he can take his plane, arming this with the armed subs, crash in the ocean for them to uh, dive and retrieve the subs and then hold the world hostage. Yes. Uh, this plot is insane how they did it never say never again because here they took an american pilot named jack patachi uh they bribed him with heroin so they got him addicted to heroin and then they constructed an eyeball that is supposed to have the same retinal pattern of the president of the united states so he could infiltrate uh on U.S. Army Air Base and then authorize uh, n- live nuclear warheads to be to replace dummy warheads in a plane, and the this this like eye contact lens that they make for him it is the craziest fucking cyborg eyeball I've ever seen. And it's- what I love about this what this uh, this particular plot element is that I feel like getting the U.S. president's retinal scan is the hardest, most outlandish part of this plot, and it's the one they don't, and they explain, don't explain any details. How did they get that? <laughs> they, just, they have that already. Yeah, like they probably have the U.S. president on staff. He probably could have just gone there himself. But yes, it's an incredibly convoluted plan. Yeah, it's one thing to like if you have a photograph of an American pilot and like, okay, we'll give we'll do we'll give plastic surgery to this guy and he'll look like him. You know, that's fine. But a whole retinal makeover uh, is in it's insane and it's like especially how unconvincing the thing looks inside of his head it's, it's very 80 so i mean i, yeah. I will give him there, there there's a lot of like the production design everything is it feels very 80s it's all like kind of i don't know like clicky buttons oh. and light switches and silly electronic noise like noises that a computer has never made and particularly once we get to like the arcade sections and stuff so in i, I guess it's on brand but yeah there's this whole sequence of the the heist and there's it, like everything it just it 
it doesn't feel like you can't really get into it the moving parts are just kind of theoretical and outlandish they don't really there's no real merging of like kind of a technique or a heist yeah. to make it exciting yeah it, you you're right on the money there are uh, along with this film there are five other bond films that were made in the 80s this one is the most 80s of all of them it is for sure crazy how tacky and dated this film can look <laughs> at times it's it's really a, a, a like aged you know i mean octopusy is it's still a pretty well, fun romp, you know. It's not trapped yeah, the, in the the period. Like the it's another Moore than the Red Scare. Exactly. I feel like the, the the Roger Moore films are like out of time. Like they're they're so they're doing their own thing at this point. They're so camp that really they you know yeah, yeah it, the time period doesn't work for or doesn't work against them. This does very much feel like an eighties oh, yeah. movie. But like but like I say, it starts off with that great sweaty action thing that's kind of like commando or yeah. the wild geese but then it just it trades off into just something that's more just kind of i don't know like an 80s cocktail party and no one does 80s cocktail parties that's not like that's not the classic era of those <laughs> um yeah so not really a focus uh, and bond feels a little just out of time um, and that could be a story thing but they don't extrapolate on it that honestly that should be the tagline on the poster an 80s cocktail party is that's how you you you've perfectly summed up this movie i can't i don't see why we should continue but we will we've done yeah we're gonna do it anyway all right so um anyways bond is in this uh because he's old bond's in a wellness center trying to get fit uh, that also happens to be the wellness center where the American pilot Jack Patachi is staying. This is just like in Thunderball, where he happens to be staying at the place where the bad it's an guys odd are. Contrivance it is a very odd contrivance. It's a weird contrivance in that this is one of the few cases where, like Bond, is not really a great detective, but Thunderball and this film very much have the instance where they just literally Bond is ahead of the curve through pure blind luck. He discovers oh. the plot before he's made aware of it. Yeah, so he he's he actually sees. Um, Fatima Blush beating up on Jack in his room because he's he just had surgery and he's smoking, which could irritate the lens. And so Bond goes to spy on him while he's performing what would be the operation to use the retinal scanner. Uh, for some reason, Bond gives away that the guy's being watched by opening his blind from the inside of his window. And then when Fatima Blush looks outside in the darkness, she uses a night vision uh, pair of thermal goggles to see Bond's face, and she immediately recognizes him as James Bond 007. Bond gives away his position almost immediately, and they're on to him for the rest of the film. <laughs> there's no, there's very little <laughs> actual spy work involved, which is always one of the best things you want to see in this film. And this movie, again, with the aging Bond thing, throws that out the window as well. There's no subterfuge. Pretty much no. He just gets a plane ticket. Yeah, it's just like exactly. go here. All right, here's where the action is, and exactly. we're done. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, the American pilot he's killed when uh, Fatima Blush. So, so after they successfully steal the missiles, he's killed by having Fatima Blush throw a snake into his lap while he's driving his car, forcing him to veer off the road into a fatal car accident. Then, after she retrieves the snake, which somehow survived, she puts a block of C4 in the car and blows up the evidence. Yeah, she Talk kills about overkill. Him three times basically like a snake car crash and then blows up the car which is um, you know honestly you know I'm not even going to hold that against him because blush is just nuts so maybe you gotta that, make that's sure. maybe 
that's maybe on brand for her. But yeah, weird, weird setup. I just love the idea of killing some of the English countryside by throwing a ginormous snake into their car. Like yeah. if anything happens, that's going to stand out for the crime scene investigators because they don't have those in England. Yeah. But yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it is bonkers. Um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so Bond uh, is. I think the rest of the film takes place in or around the Bahamas, if I'm not mistaken. Mostly, um, yeah. Mostly in the Bahamas, Bond goes to follow the path of Largo and uh, Blush. Um, there's a there's a brief scene where he gets an explosive pen from Q. Uh, Q played by an actor whose name I did not write down this time around, but uh, he asked by Alec McGowan. There we go. For anyone who who needs to know that, uh, for all you, I don't really make any further notes on this. Honestly, M and Q show up very all like very briefly here, and they're not. Oh I, yeah. I mean, you 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 can make the case that maybe M and Q in any individual Bond film don't really make much of an impression, generally speaking. But you know, cumulatively, they build something. Certainly, they're not standout characters here they're very much just kind of faces that appear in scenes and they're gone oh yeah and and like money penny is almost a non-figure in this film she's there is nothing you know there's no real flirting with her and yeah yeah she literally just seems like a secretary that bond has a long friendly relationship with that you know they they care about each other as co-workers and they just kind of chat briefly and then which is very wholesome but again I mean, fair enough, they changed things, but they didn't change it to anything that was more notable than the usual, so... Right. Mm. Yeah, so, anyway, Bond goes to the Bahamas, uh, he meets his British contact, played by, in his big screen debut, uh, one of the most, uh, I think, uh, 1983's Sexiest Man Alive, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Rowan Atkinson. Uh, shows Johnny up. English himself. That's yep. Right. That's right. So Mr. Bean's in this movie for a couple of scenes, uh, and he's just as bumbling as ever. Um, I don't understand the cast. Like, I mean, fair enough. I grew up watching Mr. Bean like everyone else. I just don't understand the like the concept of like Rowan Atkinson showing up in a film I'm making. I just that's yeah interesting choice. But there it happened. Isn't he also in the? Um, I haven't seen it, but is he in the Nick Rogue Witches film? If I'm not mistaken. I think he, well, I think he he's well in. A, I think he's like a hotel manager in that. I don't know. I've that seen makes more sense. It was like a Roald Dahl adaptation. Like that's you know kids. Yeah. Mr. Bean. Even if the Nick Rogue witches, I've not actually watched it either myself. Um, hmm. We need to address that at some point. But is maybe not as kid friendly as well. The British cut is less kid friendly than the American cut. They they softened things for the stateside audience. Well, but yeah. I mean that kind of makes a little bit more sense. But you know, Rowan Atkinson and and he's literally he's just there to be the bumbling silly British person. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, maybe I'll have to check that one out. At least I know which cut to do, the British one. Yeah, try it. If you can find it, I'm not even sure if it's easily available. That may be why I've never watched it, actually, (laughs) come to think of it. Very interesting. All right, anyway, so Bond goes to the Bahamas. Uh, He goes, I forget why he goes underwater, I think, to investigate the plane. Um something anyways i'm gonna give the audience a little peek behind the curtain um whenever i take whenever i watch one of these films i always have my notepad with me and i take a lot of notes and they always start off like very um very detailed like uh, the opening of my notes for example are like uh, like a, there's a grid of 007s as if they're flaunting that they have the rights and Bond infiltrates the jungle fortress. And then literally right around this point, like my notes just kind of drop off to just vague 
plot generalizations. So I don't. That I don't have. Sounds foolish. I don't have much in the way of detail. Um, for I mean, to be to be fair, okay, because I do realize at this point we have entirely pissed or, or skipped over uh, one of the major events of this film, which is that James Bond in the clinic does manage to murder a man with his own piss. Oh yeah, that's oh my god. So, I mean that. that How is, can we forget? Like let's get let's give this film its due, and we can at least mention that there's a hulking henchman attacks Bond when he's still in the clinic. Yeah, and uh, basically beats the the crap out of him. He's played by Pat Roach, right. uh, who was a former wrestler, who you will recognize certainly from Raiders of the Lost Ark as right. the Nazi guard who beats the crap out of Harrison Ford before a plane propeller beats the crap out of him. Yeah, he, uh, and he's, he's actually the... in all of the Indiana Jones films until the crystal skull he died unfortunately before that film went in otherwise i'm pretty sure they probably would have found a role for him and he's he's yeah. a heavy in a bunch of other films red sonya and willow and conan the destroyer he was a big guy um, oh yeah it, there's a lot yes. of we should mention there's a lot of crossover with a lot of other like films of this era like uh this film was shot by douglas slocomb who shot the first three indiana jones movies um, we mentioned Irvin Kirshner. He directed Star Wars or one of the Star Wars films. Um, just a lot of yeah, a lot of odd jobs here and there that are that are crossover studio productions. Yeah, de- definitely Indiana Jones and Star Wars are two major. There's a lot of crew overlap between them, and they were all shot in England. In I, I'm guessing in L Street Studios, I think uh, around yeah. this time. So yeah, I, I think you know everyone was on location anyway. Why bring in many more people? But anyhow, yeah. it's this is one of the the better sequences. It kind of mixes action with comedy. It's not brilliantly choreographed. It's a fight, but basically, uh, Lip is the guy's name. Yep. I don't know how anyone knows that. I don't think he's addressed by name at any point in the film. But uh, he basically is beating the crap out of, of Sean Connery because he's a big, tough guy, and Sean Connery's a 52-year-old man who's recovering. So he's throwing Bond through walls and yeah. beating him up and everything, and he's basically impervious to damage. And there's some good comedy there. They they have a fight where there's a bunch of old people watching a soccer game, and they're cheering to mask the 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 blows being traded and stuff well not so, only yeah. are they cheering but like their cheers match each of the blows that the guy throws at bond so every time he throws a hook into bond's direction the old people are oblivious and they stand up and cheer and and the guy yeah. he, the, i like how the guy kind of smiles and nods at this old lady who turns and looks at him and then he goes back into his like serious irish boxer pose to go after yeah. bond down the hallway i think this is definitely this is one of the better kind of set pieces within it, it kind of mixes I, it's, it's action with its comedy pretty well and it, it ends up that James Bond uh, who when he first entered the the, uh, the the clinic was asked for a urine sample I don't know why they held onto it for so long I don't know maybe this was a thing in the early 80s but anyway <laughs> at least a day or two later that same <laughs> urine sample is on a desk and he without knowing what it is throws it in the man's face and he clutches his fingers like he's got acid thrown in his face and he falls backwards onto all manner of shards of glass and ends up yeah. being impaled by a bunch of, of clinical glassware and then Bond looks at the, the what he threw at him and it turned out it was his own piss it's, just, it's which is James a, Bond urine sample that's right which honestly you can't go Specimen. wrong with a pee gag um, so that's definitely if we're talking this up that's that's a, that's one of the better things. Unfortunately, that's within what the first half hour of the film yeah. starting. So, and this film is two and a quarter hours long. I, um, I like this fight because of how messy it is. It's not spectacularly choreographed, but I like Bond tips over like a full china cabinet onto the guy, and it's it's all held. There's a lot of 
a lot yeah, of a lot destruction. Of broken stuff. The yeah. guy even he even pulls out like this crazy like coil hand chain that like cuts a <laughs> knife in half. I don't know how that works, but it's really cool. Um and and yeah, but it ends with a pee gag and um I mean at least they set up the 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 pee gag, which is actually I think a pretty funny line where Bond's sitting on a on the hospital table and on the other side of the room the nurse is holding a beaker and says, uh, Mr. Bond, I'll need a urine sample. Or can you please fill this beaker? And Bond says, From here? And she, she it's, it's a, definitely one of one of the better gags in there. Yeah. So, so I mean I imagine James Bond's urine is probably ninety five percent gin. I was, I was gonna say the guy <laughs> was disgusted because he was like hundred and ninety proof alcohol that he threw in his face. Oh yeah, this is rubbing alcohol. With, uh, <laughs> that's what happens when you've been in the, the force for that long. That's right. But anyhow, we we digress. Let us skip forward again, having acknowledged that one wonderful moment. Yeah. Um, so to Bond getting, I don't even know where we're at. Yeah. Well, well Bond's underwater. <laughs> He's chased by a shark because a shark magnet is placed both on his person with the receiving end placed on yes. the fin of a shark. And there's actually a pretty. I think this is the longest underwater sequence in the film is where he's chased. Uh, by a shark, a real shark, through some underwater wreckage. This is, this is a hell of a sequence, actually. Um, it's as pretty much cool. as I want to dunk on this this film, this is one of the other standouts. I do have watching this film some concerns about animal safety. Oh, oh um, and there's I know, a big the, one at the end. We'll get yeah, to in the but. early '80s. It was they were did not do those uh, American Humane Society notices. Those kind of came in a little later on, particularly after Heaven's Gate. I don't remember what year Heaven's Gate came out, but I believe that was like the last straw. It was like like 80 or something yeah, yeah that was that was one of the ones that really focused on animal uh, treatment on set because they blew yeah. some animals up in that movie oh yeah uh, which is you know distinctly uncool and this movie has the it's a real shark this is a really impressive interaction with uh, basically uh, a diver swimming through a labyrinth underwater like a sunken ship and sharks chasing them and they're real sharks it's yeah. a i don't exactly know how this was done if they had you know, break off with with glass separating them, or if the sharks were trained and it was choreographed to a certain degree. You know, I I don't know, but like they slam a door shut on a shark's head at one point, and I'm like, that's all looks very real to me. Yeah. So it's it's a really impressive sequence. It's honestly, I wasn't so much excited so much as I was interested in how they did it. It still kind of got that slow underwater kind of rhythm to it, but yeah. Definitely, definitely one of the standouts, and certainly more interesting, I think, than any of the shark action we got in Thunderball, yeah. which I know did mostly involve, you know, kind of having, a, I think, putting a plexiglass screen between everyone and having a diver on one side and the sharks on the other, so it just looks like they're in the same area, but they're not actually. Yeah. Um, Connery has a so, close encounter with one of them, and he was actually pissed about being in the same water yes. as a shark. Yeah, Sean Connery has a fear of sharks, which I believe is just basic normal human behavior <laughs> uh, i don't think you have to clarify someone has a fear of sharks but there we go there was something that came up uh, oh, in Thunderball. He's, he's rational okay very good <laughs> yeah yeah something like that yeah. um but yeah it wasn't it but and also but again it's it's so outlandish because you know they have the sharks have these little like uh, battery attachments at their fins this is like pure austin powers you know sharks with lasers mm-hmm. um 
you know, and and he has a weird homing device that that um, Fatima Blush attaches to his his air oxygen tank, which he he he, he figures it out super quickly too, because he like looks at the back of the shark, he sees they have an attachment on the back, and he immediately kind of like reaches back to his his oxygen tank, like oh there must be something attached to me that makes them you know want to attack me. Doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense on that point, but I think an impressive sequence and definitely probably the best underwater sequence of the the film. Yeah. Um, even if I don't know exactly what happened to the shark, uh, we'll work. It's not. A, I'm good. I'm just not going to research it because I found out some things about like the underwater fight in Zombie Flesh Eaters, um, you know, or AKA Lucio zom- Fulci Zombie or Zombie uh, which Two. Is a, or zombie two, depending on how far from any kind of oversight you were looking at the distribution <laughs> in the country, um, as an unofficial Dawn of the Dead remake, as it was released in Italy without it actually being anything of the sort. But yeah, there's that great fight between the zombie and the shark and that. But like that, zo- that shark had its teeth removed and stuff, and it's just really like terrible it was uh, sedated too if i'm not mistaken yeah very sedated had no teeth i don't know if they removed it for the film or they just found a shark with no teeth but either way it's it's definitely not a um not a shining example of the magic of movies per se right um, so i don't know hopefully they were a little bit better with this but it's a really impressive sequence in terms of melding man and shark together um that of course would not be equaled until great blue sea or whatever came out which uh, really set the bar even higher for a man shark uh, action Indeed. Um, so anyway yeah i don't remember what happens next after that to well, be honest well, with you the plot is bond eventually finds himself we'll just cut cut ahead to the the casino sequence because i know we, re- fine we with that. really need to talk about this so bond goes has to met, yeah has he met kim basinger yet um let's see we've met her in the film she's on she's largo's girlfriend she's doing jazzercise classes on his boat uh his giant peep show thing but it's one of my favorite gadgets in this is that uh, um his little control room whatever his name is yeah he's got a little control room largo has a control room with an entire uh one-sided mirror that allows him to watch his girlfriend in her dance studio but what's it's super creepy but if i remember correctly there's a whole screen that opens behind the mirror to reveal his view into the mirror which yeah. makes me wonder what the heck mechanics like she's just dancing and just hears this gigantic <laughs> whir, like whirlwind noise like cogs going is like what the heck is that i'll just keep dancing i guess yeah i want to know like but, how much space inside of the yacht that that takes up because he has to have he has a full it's also a full rotating room as well as well as a lifting glass door to yes. block off the image it's it's insane how much is like in that to, space yeah I, I would like to point out though that if if that's a real thing and there was a peep show uh kind of dance studio in there that would remain because later on that yacht would be bought by a certain donald trump that's so right he he owned that yacht for a while later on um and well i don't want to say that he'd be the sort of man to avail of that but obviously he would yeah so, yeah it's a, a, a messy we try not we try not to get political on here but he's no. just not a very nice person <laughs> no not at all um anyway speaking of not nice people uh largo has a casino and um while there are a few card tables it's mostly a video arcade uh is what he has there's about a, th- yeah, it's a charity uh, fundraiser that they're earning low like they're inviting there's a bunch of old people in tuxedos who've been brought in to play 
fucking centipede or yeah, something. There's centipede, there's a bunch of Galaga machines, uh, but the real, the piece de resistance is a game called uh, Domination, which is uh, Largo's own constructed game. He challenges Bond to it. Uh, the objective of the game isn't really made clear, but essentially you and an opponent battle over a country in the world uh, for a score, and what you do is, I guess you, with lasers, you shoot out geographical sections of a map. Well, I think they light up first, and you have to shoot them first or something. I was yeah. trying to figure out the dynamics of the video game as it played. And while, um, while you did that, you can also send nuclear warheads to your opponent's side and if your opponent is hit with nukes or if you take your hands off of the uh the controls uh the game ends and then as you as your opponent becomes more and more victorious in the game the controls become harder to hold due to an electric shock that they administer so it's Which i think it's a pretty funny because honestly that sounds like something that hideo kojima would actually put in a video game that that electric <laughs> shock thing that just sounds like the kind of dumb thing that yeah. he would write down like we're gonna do that and everyone would be like no you're absolutely not going to do that and so yeah i, I like to imagine that uh, largo is is like a just a mad genius but it's not a very good game like this is not a great sequence and again in the in we talk about this being like the super 80s movie this is literally like the baccarat game or the backgammon game i guess in uh in octopus i think it was back backgammon yeah um or baccarat or whatever in um you know in casino royale or whatever you know all the you know the, the old world games that bond has routinely bested his foes in through skill or through confidence or through bluff and then and this time around it's it's a video game with kind of indistinct rules and bond wins just because he's James Bond, it's not you know it, it's yeah. it's kind of not a great sequence. It doesn't really translate very well. It feels very much like an attempt to like a bunch of old guys in a room going, "What are the kids like?" Very, it yeah. very much has that vibe. Yeah, so it's I mean it's a common Bond trope we've explored. There always has to be a casino sequence where Bond meets and upstages the villain at his own game. Here it's like, well, yeah, exactly. What's big? Oh, kids love Pong. Well, let's do something with that. And oh, we can we can make it a game about nuclear domination to tie into the, the central plot of the film. You know, how, how great is that? So, yeah, it's a very uh, <laughs> the, the game is not very clear. And it's 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 the effects. Uh, well, let me tell you how well those have aged. Uh, not well at all. Um, Remarkable. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, domination. It's um, I mean, yeah, it's basically missile command but with different controls and honestly not as easy to understand as missile command yeah uh, so probably a worse game all in all and it takes place at this ginormous table too like it takes up a whole room oh yeah it's, it's very you're like on you know. other ends of an oversized pool table with it and there's like a giant like a air hockey divider to set up the holographic screen in the middle i think it is just an air hockey table i think they might have just refitted one probably right um, yeah, it's it's I don't know. Again, it's just one of those sequences that maybe seems a little more interesting on paper than the final the final project. There's just not a lot to there's not a lot to really drive it home as a dramatic uh, sequence. Yeah. Other than I mean, it's supposed to be obviously a battle of minds, the first real meeting of wills of Bond and Largo. But it just sort of is it's it's difficult to keep a focus on that while you're also watching this like weird made up video game unfold. Yeah. Also, the uh, the value of the world, according to the game, is uh, only three hundred grand. So uh, that's true. That's yeah. nice. Um, 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's in a in a future of you know who knows. In- you know? Inflation uh, is a bitch. <laughs> deflation, large <laughs> amounts of deflation have occurred. Yeah, uh, maybe right. it's a Bitcoin. Yeah. So, anyways, Bond is clearly he's on to Largo. He beats him at his own game. Um, this uh, leads to a uh, skipping around a bit. Forgive me, but this leads to I think another uh, decent sequence is this uh, motorcycle chase sequence. Uh, we got where um, Bond is uh, pursued, or he's pursuing rather, Fatima Blush uh, through the city streets. Um, there's some cool stuff like a motorcycle doing a wheelie up a set of stairs. That looks practical and well done. Um, there's some good motorcycle riding in here, definitely. Some good motorcycle riding, but it kind of ends in the goofiest way where uh, Fatima corners Bond into like this, like this old storage nook, and she actually knocks him off by swinging a, a boat mast at him. Uh, and holds which, him is set up, which is set up as a trap, like it's a pre-existing trap for a motorcyclist. I don't like. Yeah, how does she have a spring-loaded boat mast in just the right place? It, uh, that was very confusing to me. I do think, though, am I correct in thinking that this is a reversal of Thunderball? Didn't uh, was a Fiona Volpe in Thunderball ride a motorcycle? <laughs> In Thunderball? Uh, yes. I, yeah, I, so, so it's like, so they swap it around and Bond is on a motorcycle this time, I think. Yeah, so in Thunderball, I'm I'm, I'm trying to remember, I believe she is, I think, think she uses that to gun down another, um, the She's got the like pilot. a missile launcher on it, yeah. isn't that the right film That's that I'm right. thinking yeah, of? She, so she blows up the, after they do, they steal the missiles, instead of the snake, she actually fires a missile like a, a sensible assassin would. And, yeah, which is, frankly, like, Makes a lot more sense. Yeah, but anyhow, and I, I suppose this is a good point to just to, like let's let's talk about uh, Fatima Blush because yeah. I feel like we were you know she's definitely maybe to my mind maybe the best thing in this movie. I would, I would agree completely. And uh, the film, well, I'm just gonna spoil no Oscar nominations, but she was nominated for a Golden Globe for this performance. Uh, yes, she did. She lost out to Cher. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> Is that- hard, hard to, I mean, I'm not going to say that Cher didn't serve it for Silkwood, but still, like a Golden Globe for a Bond villain, and for, particularly for a Bond girl villain role, that's actually genuinely impressive, and, and she uh, deserves it. She, and a she's Bond good here. villain girl role in a Bond film that was made by scrupulous means? I mean, come on. Oh, it's- she's, she's winning. Yeah, I mean, no one else would... I mean, honestly, the Bond girls in this one fared super well. We have a future Oscar winner in, in the other pocket so this is a somehow they really nailed that one down but yeah Fatima Blush is is an interesting Bond villainess because she honestly she pointed forward to me to Goldeneye to and I can't remember her name Natalia whatever the crazy one um that kind of like the the sadomasochistic female the she's I'm sorry which film are you referring to isn't it Goldeneye that has oh, the right. Russian... Yes, so yeah. Famke Janssen is Xenia on a top. Xenia on a top, that's one. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, yeah, suitably, probably not very accurate Russian name. Um, so, so <laughs> no, not I, at all. Yeah, I think Fatima Blush is, is great, and part of it is because she has this weird psychosexual thing going on, which um, she brings to Bond, and she, like... <laughs> I mean, okay, so she's knocked him off the bike... <laughs> with her goofy mask trap. She wants Bond before she kills him to sign a letter acknowledging that she is the best lay he's ever had. That's right. That is an alpha move. That's what James Bond would do to someone, you know, if you were less polite. It's just such a, a, like that I think is just a really funny 
kind of set up in in a whole franchise in a whole universe of James Bond where basically everyone sleeps with everyone I mean it's worth noting at this point that James Bond has slept with I think three different women at this point in the film one oh, yeah. of them being Fatima Blush um so good good work Sean Connery but so she she makes him sign basically a signed affidavit that that she's the best sex he's ever had which is her downfall because Q's missile pen comes to the fore and and defeats her but even that's a pretty good pretty good death because he shoots her with the missile pen and he's been informed that it's still under construction and it just jabs her and she's still alive oh yeah and she thinks she's got away with it she thinks it's misfired and and she's like about to strike him down and then suddenly just explodes and we have fully exploding woman which is uh, you know always a, a plus if you if you watch that explosion in slow motion um i i didn't do this but i kind of noticed it but if you go back and watch it you can see the dummy's hands fly off in either direction as it explodes it's, it's <laughs> glorious uh, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. That's what happens when you explode. That's, that's right. actually that's You're that's totally biologically accurate. Separate. Um the, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, I, I was just I, I feel at this point we haven't really talked too much about the character so much. Blush is, I think, definitely she's definitely one of these whenever she's on the screen you perk up a little bit you're paying yeah. more attention to her and I mean Barbara Carrera is, did pretty well that she was I mean she's originally a model she did all kinds of major modeling contracts and stuff um, and she really comes at this thing with a vengeance she had a pretty successful uh, acting career No, not really a lot of major film work but some good TV bits and stuff, but um, and weirdly enough, I found out she was originally uh, Irvin Kirshner who directed this uh, five years prior. So he obviously knew her for a long time. I'm guessing maybe he brought her to the to this this production. Um, he considered casting her in the eyes of Laura Mars in the the main mm. role, um, which is an interesting film for anyone who's seen. It's a John Carpenter wrote the script. It's an early John Carpenter script as well. It's kind of a weird sort of serial killer thing with a with an incredibly young Tommy Lee Jones. It freaks me out to see Tommy Lee Jones looking anything less than grizzled. Um interesting. But Fade but Fade on away got the role anyway. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so anyway, uh she's an interest she she really elevates this. She gives her all to it and I think the film doesn't maybe give her as much time, which I feel is something that happens with uh, some of the other ones. I think all the crazy Bond, like the really crazy Bond girls, and um, Bond villain girls, they just, uh, like Carolyn Monroe didn't ever got enough in um, uh, whichever one it is. Uh, I Spy Who Loved Me, yeah. Spy Who Loved Me, like she did not get enough screen time and she was one of the crazy Bond girls and yeah. Even even anyway. Fiona Volpe is arguably the highlight in Thunderball yes. and she's, you know, just as, as energetic and crazed and just a lot of fun to watch. The films, the films really do start to like slow down after they're dispatched. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, I mean, she she's a she's a good she's a good addition here. But anyhow, she dies. So um, and Bond continues. The, I do like that chase just prior to that. That uh, they mm-hmm. they rustle James Bond on a motorcycle on the motorcycle. I don't know why they don't make him get off the motorcycle. They like round him up and surround him, and then they yeah. make him wheel his motorcycle into the back of a truck. I didn't like. I said I don't know why they don't get him off the motorcycle. That would seem like more of a liability. And then they slowly raise the back of the truck, which conveniently creates a motorcycle ramp, which you think might be something you would have foreseen, but I guess not. But anyhow, um, yeah, that's that's that sequence. And again, cause some good practical stunts. But on you know, I, I'd yeah. be lying if I say I was elated by anything i'd seen there's a little bit like speed racer 
you know, stunt jumping here and there, but eh, you know, yeah. it's it's not really it's not really rewriting the rules. At least they don't put a slide whistle anywhere. I'll give them that oh. much. No, thank God. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we we I'm gonna cut back because we haven't really talked about her. But um, Kim Basinger <laughs> is the the Bond girl, Domino, and um, I just remembered Bond meets her when she's at her own uh, wellness clinic. Uh, he poses as a masseuse and uh, basically assaults her. <laughs> to, oh no. To, introduces himself to her oh god yes uh, he gives her he gives her a massage and i guess it's built in that he he quotes he gets a massage earlier in the film with a with a, a nurse and he requotes what she said to him to yeah. make himself sound like a real masseuse and yeah i don't even remember he he's trying to get some info from her but mainly he's just being a creep um, I have, but, you know, I, I could not even tell you, begin to tell you what information is exchanged uh, in that sequence. Um, <laughs> it, all I know is that it's wrong. Uh, yeah, it's it's very weird. And also, I don't think massage protocol is being followed because, like, at one point he just lifts her towel up and she rolls over. But, like, I don't think you lift the towel up like that. I think that's, you know, unless yeah. you're feeling very frisky yourself or very, uh, you know, very self-confident. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, yeah, that's, that's right. That's where they first encounter. And, of course, uh, she is the sister of our erstwhile heroin addict murdered by car crash snake explosion <laughs> um, which, which I dare you to really... string together a crazier sentence than what you just said which is a goddamn hell of a way to go and she doesn't know he's dead she, or she, does she not know he's dead or she certainly doesn't know that, that Largo is responsible she has no idea she's well, waiting for him to return I believe she doesn't know but Bond after Bond beats uh, Largo at uh, Domination um, Bond takes her out to Tang and we see this is the first time we ever see Bond dance in a movie. Um, so, oh man! And and let me let me just tell you this as a side effect. Um, I watched this sequence just last week. I watched another uh, really wonderful little film uh, by Sally Potter called The Tango Lesson, mm. uh, which is full of world class tango performances. This scene does not hold up so well when you've recently watched an entire film full of world class tango performances. But anyhow, just just throwing that out there um yeah again like everything else in this film the stunt work is just not quite elevated enough no it's mostly just sort of slow walking and like with very elongated steps is really all the choreography a couple, a couple is. of silly leg movements but yeah, yeah. that's true you know I, I guess i hadn't really thought about it. he doesn't really dance he just drinks which honestly <laughs> i can i can fully i, I can I, be that's actually that's yeah that's basically my stance on this too yeah no dancing but i will hold i will hold your drink while you're dancing and there may even be some left when you get back well yeah well anyways in that bond scene in that scene bond whispers to her that uh, largo is the one who killed your brother and then she finds out or she confirms with herself by she telling largo she says that oh i can't wait to see my brother tomorrow and largo lies and says oh he's sent me a message saying that he's been called away for some more time in the air force and so that's how she knows that largo is in fact lying to her so um yeah so bond after he dispatches fast forwarding to after he dispatches fatima blush uh he sneaks back on um largo's ship 
were there. Uh, he tells um, Domino about the plan inside her jazzercise room. And all while, uh, Largo is frantically trying to listen, but he can't because Bond turned on the tacky dance music so high, so he can't eavesdrop on him. He can only see what they're doing. Um, and then this leads to, a, actually, a, I think is a pretty funny sequence where after they leave the room, Bond sneaks into Largo's little spy hub, and then he watches as Largo v- maliciously smashes the radio to pieces with a fire axe. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. That is definitely, yeah. The, you know, and these little interactions work. They're, they're, they're better than most, but yeah. Um, man, there's so much plot in this there's movie. There's so really much did, more we reminds, have left to say. Yeah, it, oh, it, my it, God. It reminds me so much of Thunderball in that sense, that there's just an enormous amount of plot, but all of it is really forged by happenstance and gimmickry like none of it is like there's no real spy craft there's no really clever twist or anything it's just sort of just they're just constantly coming up with more stuff to talk about yeah yeah so uh so anyways um bond's captured talking about, talking about kim basinger she she does pretty well in this movie i think with a pretty thankless role um She's so just yeah. She she's around. Um, not the best, here's, but you know here's, she's here's solid. Here's a fun thing I learned though. I, I don't want to like sink too too much into sitcom humor here, but um, apparently she was suggested for the role by Sean Connery's wife, mm. um, and that's that's shown a trusting relationship. I was saying like, hey, why don't you hang out with Kim Basinger for for a couple of months? Uh, so well done to her. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, that's that's just something I learned. But anyhow, yeah, we're we're, we're we where do we go next what nonsense is yet to unfold after this bond is captured he's chained up in a cell in a in an old abandoned castle and uh domino is uh about to have her body sold off to a pack of hungry Arabs who are I kind of passed out I feel like for about 10 minutes there (laughs) and I genuinely had no idea how they got to the castle sex auction part that was absolutely baffling to me and I'd exaggerate it wasn't 10 minutes I feel like it was only like two to three minutes and the movie just changed and i was like is this yeah what is happening well yeah so largo is basically he's entering the final throes of his mission because he the ransom has not been paid so he's gonna ignite the nukes um fortunately bond escapes with the watch laser he escapes with domino uh together they leap off of one of the castle walls on horseback (laughs) this is the other uh sorry trigger warning animal abuse uh (laughs) sequence the animal's okay the horse they have a shot of it later on but it's I, I kind of swimming away but there there's a whole horse with two people on its back jumping from a high building into the ocean water which does not look that deep when they're swimming in it um yeah it, it, it's yeah, I don't know. really uncomfortable it's it's definitely it's like it's a visual but yeah i'm not i'm not cool with this i i would like to just be something flashing on the screen going this is fine this horse is fine this horse lived to a ripe old age it needs a, um, a shot like at the end of the spy who loved me with jaws swimming away we need a shot in this movie of the horse swimming like yeah. oh well, by the way there, there's Mr. a shot there's a shot out. of the horse yeah i feel like there's a shot of the horse swimming away but it might just be a different horse i have no idea i know horses can swim but i don't know what their diving game is like uh, yeah. so um oh. mm. 
But anyhow, it's it's something, and yes, he rescues him, or rescues uh, Domino from. Why is she called Domino Patachi? What is that name? I. Um, it might be an Italian name from the novel. Uh, my Italian, and and it's played by Kim Basinger, and the other actor who plays her brother is Irish. It that's is, right. Uh, yeah, a, a, it's a very bizarre for Patachi to be their surnames, yeah. and they changed their names from Thunderball, but they gave them more exotic names. Um, anyhow, just a weird thing. I don't know why she's called Domino Patachi. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you, but anyways, um, because she has a special necklace called the, the Tears of Allah, uh, it's also a map that locates the fi- the hidden nuclear yes. weapon. Did, did we mention the depiction of Muslims in this film is less than endearing? <laughs> <laughs> as the slavering I, horde of guys trying to buy a blonde woman in the market square uh, uh, well done this is truly uh, truly the era of Rambo 3 yeah so um, yeah well yeah uh, here we go uh, have the, things got better no not at all so nah, we've all learned our lesson all this terrible uh, anyways <laughs> so yeah Bond Bond ambushes um we didn't mention that uh, there's a Felix Leiter in this film, played by Bernie Casey, and he's actually pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, he's, I really like him. He is. I love, Felix Leiter is he's always kind of the unsung hero in like the in the mainline franchise. He never gets enough to do, yeah. and that changes a little bit as we get maybe to the Dalton era. It's easy to Leiter's... easy to forget him because you know like so many of the this movie is just really all about Connery. Like all the supporting people in the film, you kind of wish they there there were more of them in it. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing because Connery, one of the things that he did when he came onto this movie, one of the reasons he was you know keen to do this movie, other than I think because he legitimately wanted to stick it to to the broccoli clan, mm-hmm. um, he did. He played a large part in the casting for the film. Apparently, he really was attached to a whole lot of like uh, Klaus Maria von Brandauer as as Largo was was a Connery recommendation, and Kim Basinger came in through Connery's wife and several mm. other people he recommended and he sourced. Uh, and Bernie Casey, he also recommended apparently for the role. He was another one nice. of Connery's recommendations. So Connery did, I feel like, a pretty solid job on casting the movie. But you're right, everyone then gets pushed out of the way for more Sean Connery. Yeah. So kind of you can't win. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, you know, star power is everything, I guess. Um, this, uh, yeah, I suppose so. And it, but the, yeah, uh, it, of course for. Sh- Sean Connery to play Bond, but play Bond pretty much the same as he would have 12 years ago when he left, when he hated it. Uh, anyway, so be it. Well, anyway, so they track down Largo. They they capture the final nuclear weapon. Bond and Largo fight underwater, but then out of nowhere, Domino comes and spear guns him uh, as a means of poetic justice for killing her brother. And then uh, the movie ends with a uh, nice little poolside retreat with uh, Domino and Bond. And our good friend Rowan Atkinson comes back to try to give Bond another mission. But uh, Bond says, never again. But uh, Domino says, uh-huh. never. And then Bond looks at the camera, winks, and the credits roll. And it's it's less endearing. I mean, it's not particularly great to begin with, but less so for the fact that yeah, never. There's no more Sean Connery James Bond. Spoiler alert: He doesn't do this again. So no. yeah, so that's it. it. Yeah. He voices a video game like ten years later or whatever. I don't know, but that's uh, that's not really the same thing. So yeah, it's uh, there we go. Um, 
Let's never say never again, people. What, what do you do want from us? Do we sell this one? Do, do we sell this one? Well, like, I feel a little bad in one way because it's like this. Is, it's not like this is significantly worse in particular is, like the man with the golden gun or yeah. or octopus. It's not really worse than either of those films, but it's just the feeling that it's it had such opportunities to shake things up. And yeah. I think it really squanders it. It it's, really just falls in. It may as well be mainline. It's you know, it, James Bond. It definitely it, it definitely works best as a curio. And if you're if you're a Bond completionist out there listening to this, certainly you've seen this movie. And if not, you should definitely watch it at least once just to see what other yeah. people did with the material. Um, it's uh, and and as as far as uh, the other unofficial Bond film we've covered, this is leaps and bounds better than sixty seven Casino Royale. So uh, oh, this is not oh, this yeah. is not a bad this is not a bad movie. I think it's fine at the end of the it's, day. It's a little slow. It's a little, little test your patience here and there, but it will not like you're not going to be rolling your eyebrows and just looking for literally anything else in the room to do. Right. Which is where Casino Royale left me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe maybe you'll be one of the few people that likes this more than uh, Thunderball. Who knows? It's yeah. uh, I was I was confused with him because I looked at contemporary reviews at the time it came out and they were really, really positive towards it, generally speaking. Yeah. Which really confused me. And I think it really is just a Connery effect. I feel like it was just that they were so glad to have Connery back that they just kind of really focused in on him. Yeah. Um, but I'm just I'm just not getting that effect. Like Connery, I think he I mean he's Sean Connery, he's kind of dapper and cool and stuff, but like there's no edge to his bond in this one, which was something that really elevated him, I think, as the original bond. He had that kind of like killer instinct that cut in ever so often. Yeah. Uh, certainly something like Roger Moore does not. Um and it's but it's uh, yeah it's, it's just there's nothing really there there's not really a lot of heft to his bond he doesn't really have to do a lot here it really does feel like you know kind of an old man or an older man just kind of coming back in and reliving the greatest hits yeah even um I, one of the reviews i looked up roger ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars and he credited it all to connery saying that it's great to see connery back and at attention so yeah connery oh. he's you know he pushed aside everyone in the film this film lives and dies on connery's shoulders it's yeah, a lot of connery boners apparently in the uh in <laughs> yeah. the review community yeah. um I was just, I just, I guess he's just not my type at this point. I couldn't tell. Was he wearing a wig in this film? I know he was. He's, towards he, the, yeah. he's been wearing he a is. wig since Goldfinger. Um, so oh, no. just, yeah, okay, it, cool. it's, it's yeah. Uh, not great. Also, a lot, a lot, a lot of tricks to um, this make point, him look. That counts as a Bond gadget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, Bond Gadgets, we've gone from a cool attache case to a toupee and a beaker of urine. Yeah, well, to be fair, one of my favorite Bond Gadgets is in this film early on uh, in the in the retreat. He has a suitcase that he smuggled in full of, like, foie gras oh, yeah. and other rich foods, and they're all strapped down in individual cases, and that, to me, is the greatest Bond Gadget I've ever seen. That's the one I take the most pleasure from, I think. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I just love the idea he went to a health retreat and it's like you're not fit enough to be in the field and he's like fine great i'm just going to eat foie gras yeah uh anyways well i think it's that time shall we run some numbers i i think now is as good a time as any. oh one thing we haven't mentioned oh. right, we're running in with with the with the kills and stuff oh, um, but oh. yeah you, you mentioned it to me last night uh our fight choreographer That's on this right. film 
a certain Mr. Steven Seagal uh, worked as a fight choreographer in this and managed to break Connery's wrist yeah. uh, while on production, which apparently Connery only learned over a decade later that he'd broken his wrist, so it probably wasn't a severe break. But yeah, just another thing that Steven Seagal fucked up in his lifetime. Uh, honestly, Steven Seagal, I'm like I'm an advocate for Seagal's like first four to five films as being solid eighties trash entertainment sure, yeah. cinema. But um the fight choreography in this does not you were not gonna find a through line from this to like above the law. And uh, there's yeah. no such thing. So but an interesting uh point that at this point Steven Seagal was was doing some fight choreography on other bigger pictures. So anyway, uh, our numbers on this one for the body counts are pretty low, honestly. It's um, yeah, Bond is very uh, aside from like the opening, which is like the most active he is. He, he, he kills more people in the opening training <laughs> sequence than in the entire rest of the film, and then they're of course not real kills. Yeah, so it's sort of a weird such. bait and switch. So he actually only kills. I counted four kills here mm. in the whole film. Now, admittedly, there's one point in the motorcycle race where a car flips and another car crashes in to it i'm not counting it because they're you know no one dies in cars in hollywood unless you throw a snake in uh, yeah so, or it careens off the side of a cliff and explodes midair yes exactly or if james bond kicks it off the side of the cliff like roger moore at his most aggressive uh, which honestly is probably more aggressive than anything connery does here yeah so yeah so we, we have four people killed which brings our franchise total to 161 mm. i'm counting this in the franchise total james bond is bigger than any one company um, obviously nowhere close to The Spy Who Loved Me with 22 kills although it is worth noting that in second place behind The Spy Who Loved Me with the highest body count is actually Thunderball hmm. um, the film came before this which had 21 people killed if memory serves so the body count in this is ratcheted well that's not correct I guess the body count of this is much higher than four people but James Bond doesn't kill any of them oh yeah uh, I'm only I'm only counting who James Bond kills so Bond doesn't even kill the main villain as we mentioned Domino does that for poetic justice etc this brings anyway uh sean connery gets a little a little nudge on and he gets 74 people he's killed in total but at this point he's already lagging behind roger moore with 81 people so roger moore is going to kill a bunch more people in a view to a kill so he's definitely he's (laughs) definitely winning this one grand killer grandpa on the loose where we do have some interesting points here though is on the uh, sex count which is obviously our very favorite count here uh, because honestly this matches the horniest james bond film of lore That's which right. is from russia with love he had four women that he bedded in that now in in Russia with love they were very smart in that they snuck in a sneaky threesome with the romani girls who were fighting over a husband and decided instead to have sex with james bond that night which is clearly very yeah culturally sensitive to the romani people but in this one uh, this is unprecedented within a james bond movie uh, in that uh, james sleeps with four separate women on four separate occasions they really slot him in on this one we don't have any record age difference though it's all pretty normal we're nowhere near the 30 year age difference between roger moore and melinda havelock yeah aka carol bouquet and in for your eyes only That's so right. we, yeah no all this is pretty normal uh, kim basinger was 22 years younger than and uh, Sean Connery at this point, so well, that's yeah. that's, that's kind of considerable. I mean, I mean it's uh, I, look, I know, I know, that's absolutely terrible. But within the within the 
framework of the Bond franchise. It's not a record. He's eight years off the pace. Duh. Kim Basinger is an old widow at this point. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, nothing much going on there. But four people. That's that's worth discussing. Connery's still clearly the man who's just absolutely just just deeply ingrained in in ladies in the ladies for whatever reason uh, we mentioned at the very beginning this he's an older guy the women still just throw themselves at him oh my god so, it's crazy yeah so why not so um but one thing i will note actually on the numbers at this point uh with octopussy earlier this year roger moore had just drawn even with sean connery on the number of women mm. slept with within the franchise with 15 but uh connery pulls ahead here to 19 so Honestly, Moore's not going to beat him. He's only got one more movie, and I, he did not sleep with four women in A View to a Kill. That doesn't happen, I'm willing to bet. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I, no way. I'm willing to bet he gets negative numbers in there, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Maybe for, for, I mean, for decency's sake, that, that would be the only acceptable thing. But anyhow, uh, those are my numbers. Uh, so you have you got box office information tallied? I, I do. So yeah. So the um, Battle of the Bonds, Octopussy's worldwide gross was 190 million. Uh, how did Never Say Never Again do? Well, let's see. Had a budget of 36 million, which is about 92 million today. And uh, for the record, if you want a contemporary comparison, that is the budget of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Quentin Tarantino movie that just came out this past weekend at the time of this recording. Um, so it earned 55 million in the U.S., which is about 141 million dollars today. And overall, worldwide, it made 160 million. So not quite octopusy numbers but still pretty well for uh, a non-official bond movie and that's about 400 million uh, 411 million worldwide um that's definitely not a flop oh yeah it did well but um lo and behold uh kevin mcclory did not end up helming his own franchise so uh this was the last one-off we get forever I mean, he immediately after this tried to make and like basically was he was looking to remake another film that basically took the bones of Thunderball it's... and remade it again. Uh, originally, uh, he was working on a film called uh, Warhead or Thunderhead or something. <laughs> uh, Warhead. It was Warhead, and then after he made this film, which obviously got title never say never again um he then after that tried to make a film called warhead 2000 so he's basically just was trying and he's dead now so there will be no more and as you say it's been, <laughs> the, the warhead got the best of him so um i mean the, the the eon franchise owns everything now but yeah he was just i don't i actually don't know if mcclory did any other movies i should probably should have investigated that for all i know maybe he was very successful otherwise but he did seem to have like a whole lifetime's worth of trying to wring as much as he could out of one single script yeah i mean he may not have had a lifetime of movies but he certainly had a lifetime of being a thorn in the side of this production so <laughs> anyways r.i.p kevin mcclory you lit litigious you. bastard <laughs> you beautiful bastard yeah, yeah. amazing alright well uh, that about does it for Never Say Never Again uh, Jack where can the good people find you online should you, you wish to be found should I, unfortunately I can easily be found on Twitter where I spend far too much time hmm. uh, and I am at real Jack Eason on there uh, so yeah d drop me a line tell me what you think give me opinions uh, just 
whatever. Yeah, I'm here. Where can they where can they find you, Jake? As a person who spends slightly less time on Twitter. Slightly less time on Twitter. I'm still on there lurking around. I may not say as much because you know I like to I like to save my gold, as they say. But uh, I you don't like to be made of, make a fool of yourself on the internet. No, Weird. you know it's, it's 2019, <laughs> Jake. Get with the times. I can't handle so many tweets without any likes on them. But uh, anyways, uh, I'm at uh, Jake Tropila on all the things. Uh, so follow me, engage with me on Twitter. Um, you can find uh, any writing I do. I also share on there. Um, and yeah, that about does it. If you want to uh, learn more about us, we're optimismvaccine.com. You can follow us on Twitter at optimismvaccine. If you are not subscribed yet to the podcast, please do so and drop us a five-star rating with a good review, if you don't mind. Uh, if you're not all about Twitter, you can also email us at optimismvaccine at gmail.com. We do occasionally respond. Um, yeah, and until that next time, for Jackies and I'm Jake Tropila, for your ears only, we'll return with A View to a Kill.